Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today, I'm going to share with you one of the webinars I attended from the Mental Health Academy on Suicide Prevention. And this is a webinar from Kevin Berthia. It's called Two Ears, One Heart. Uh, he's a, a young gentleman who attempted to end his life um, by uh, wanting to jump off a bridge. And uh, because he's telling the story, uh, he clearly didn't. And I'm going to walk you through that. But before we get into that, I want to share with you uh, some of the quotes, things that I, you know, every day I keep a journal. And I, I don't keep a journal just of, you know, what I've done or my thoughts and emotions. I like to keep in my journal what people say that really stuck with me, that resonated, that I was like, whoa, that is powerful. Um, I was at a, Michelle and I, we went to a rooftop party. Michelle is my girlfriend for all my new listeners. We went to her and, and welcome. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you share the episode. Um, so we went to a, a rooftop party and, uh, and the, the friend who was hosting it, her boyfriend, he and I got to talking. He's in the military. Um, he's about retirement age. Um, maybe in about five more years, five more years, he's in the air force, but you know, a lot of trauma, a lot of things that he's seen and done and that he's working through. And he said that, uh, you know, he continues to surf and mountain climb because in order to get out of his head, he requires immersive experiences. So whether that's rock climbing, surfing, uh, hiking, uh, biking up mountains, you know, he described being on a bike, you know, with his friends and, you know, biking up these mountains and coming down where you have to be so present because the, the, the error or room for error, the margin for error is so narrow. There could be debris on a road, a pothole. Uh, it could get just very narrow between the cars and the side of the mountain where you're just kind of squeezed in there. A semi-truck could come along. There's so many things, you know, if a bug could fly in your face. Like, you can't be fiddling or doing anything else, especially when you're flying down a mountain. And uh, it, I, it stuck with me because I had somebody else talk about immersive experiences. And the thing that they brought up was the escape room. So for those of you who are really... Um, struggling to get out of your head, you know, I would suggest that you find some uh, immersive experience for yourself. So, you know, if it's not an escape room or hiking or, uh, you know, they talk about like the, the, the there's a new exhibit going around, the Van Gogh exhibit. Um, if you go to Vegas, they have different, uh, you know, virtual virtual reality. That's an immersive experience. Interactive art installations, um, uh, business trainings. Like when you go to these three-day workshops, two-day, like if you go to a Tony Robbins workshop, that's immersive. Like you're there, you're in a room, you, you have an idea of what the schedule is, 
but you're really going along with the fray. And so to find, you know, if you do uh, these yoga retreats where, you know, it's two days and you're eating whatever they're feeding you and, um, uh, you know, you're meditating for hours, like those can be really immersive. And I think it's part of the reason why people like Disneyland and all these uh, types of resort places because you're in it and you can feel it and it's everywhere. Um, so find that for yourself. You know, that could be a thing that you need if you are really struggling to get out of your head. And, uh, you know, but I wouldn't leave it at just that because that in itself can become addictive where what happens if, you know, you have an injury and then you can't get your immersive, uh, you know, experience fix. So I, I would definitely say to, to couple that with uh, therapy or, you know, if you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo, uh, you can get that. Uh, but find a way to immerse yourself. Scuba diving, that's another way to get. In. And the other thing that he shared with me that I thought was beautiful is his, uh, him and his wife were going through a divorce. And I guess she started drinking and he started drinking. It was a really stressful time for both of them. But his son comes up to him and says, hey, dad, mom drinks. Can you not drink? Can you be the one who doesn't drink? And he said it was at that moment he stopped drinking. I thought that was such one, a beautiful way for his son to approach his dad. Because his son, I think, was like 14, 15, 16, something like that. And to, to phrase it in a way instead of, because the son could have been like, I hate that you drink. You both drink. This sucks. But he was like, hey, mom drinks. I've accepted that. But I, I really can't accept both of you drinking, both of you not really being here. And, and for, him, for him to say that and then for him to make the change, that to me was beautiful. I almost teared up when he said it, that he loves his son so much and cares about the family so much that he was like, that was the last time I had a sip of alcohol. I was like, wow, so powerful. Because how many of us have to go through 12 steps in and out of rehab, uh, you know, different therapeutic uh, modalities to get that? And it was the, the, that's the power of connection, right? Um, and then the other quote that, that stood out to me, I sent this question around about what is the opposite of trauma? You know, I was like, is it is it triumph? Is the opposite, you know, it's like, because I hear a lot of talk about how we inherit generational traumas. But I was like, if we're inheriting the traumas, then we also must be inheriting the triumphs, right? We also must be inheriting the resilience, courage, strength, humor, collaboration, celebration, all these things that can also be passed down, not just the pain. And, you know, my friends responded with, one said, you know, the opposite of trauma is peace, and I love that. Uh, another friend said is healing or expression. Um, and then my other friend, uh, Yui, she's, my, uh, she's been added to my team as a massage therapist. Um, she said the opposite of trauma. She said there is no trauma. There's only stuff according to her beliefs, right? It's just stuff. Stuff happens. And I thought that, wow, that's a very objective way of looking at it, right? Because 
trauma really is is relative. Um, but she said it's just stuff, and it's like, what what are you gonna do with the stuff? And in in some ways, when I think about, you know, if you have a garage, you go into the garage, and it's all stuff. Some of it you're gonna keep, some of it you're gonna throw away, some of it you're gonna sell, uh, some of it uh, you're you're gonna um, wait, keep, give away trash and sell yeah and some of it you're gonna throw in the trash um you know and unfortunately you know we have some traumas or some memories that maybe we can't just give away but uh we can channel it we can move it from one place to the next and in some way and and hope uh that you know we heal on top of that but i I love that idea that it's just stuff but then my boy zach uh responded that uh, the opposite of trauma is being he said if trauma is on one side and triumph is on the other, then in the middle, the fulcrum point is being. And I thought that was beautiful. You know, it's like being, it's acceptance. So I think a lot of times we, you know, we're, if we're in our traumas, then we're in the past, we're in um, another time, and we're not present. And nor are we accepting the present. You know, it's, uh, we, we want it to change. We hope that it'll change. But we're not present. We're not here now, um, and, and that can be a changing point to to find tools and skills and ways of being instead of regretting or escaping or numbing. That you know that that which you know typically comes up when we're dealing with our traumas. Um, so I you know. When I have questions, I like to send them out to a, a bunch of my different friends who I respect, and and I just love the the conversation. And that's and that's also why I always encourage you when you're listening in to do the same. It's like when you find something that fascinates you, that you're interested in, that um, piques your ideas or curiosity. I had a I'm reading um I was reading this book Stray by Stephanie Dandler, and she had two paragraphs about relationships that I. I understood on some level, but I felt like there was a piece I was missing. And so I, I screenshot it and then sent it to tell one of my friends and really exp- uh, to just really do a deep dive on what these paragraphs mean. And I was, uh, I felt completely rewarded with uh, the ideas and the interpretations that, that came back. So uh, Stray is not a book that I recommend is really heavy there's no character arc it's it's uh but i uh but uh, but i read it because i love her other book uh sweet bitter which actually they're, they're both kind of the same there's kind of a flat character arc there's not much of a, a, a arc there but her writing is is really lovely so let's get into <laughs> let's get into the two ears one heart by kevin berthia his story and and so I'm sharing this with you because he got on this webinar to share his experience of why he wanted to end his life and um, and how we found hope uh, on the other side of it. So he had a suicide attempt when he was 22. A part of it is he was adopted as a kid. Now what was interesting is he shared that being adopted, he grew up feeling like no one else is adopted and no one else could relate, but. Sports gave him uh, a routine. It gave him an identity. It gave him something to do. And and I think that when we think about sports, 
you know, once again, we think about the trauma of sports, the violence of it, the, the collisions, the, um, but the injuries. But we forget that for a lot of kids out there, for so many kids who are growing up in single parent homes, or even if they have both parents at home, but but there's um, there's not a place for routine or identity. They don't feel like they're a part of or belong. Sports can be that thing, whether it's football, lacrosse, racquetball. We got pickleball blowing up, being on a swim team. It, you know, you, you get a chance to to feel your your body grow and change, and people patting you on the back, and the the roar of the fans, and and the identity, and giving you uh, once again that fulcrum point, that that center point to revolve your life around. So that's what he got from playing sports. He, th- he said the thing that really um, undid him as a youth was his parents went through a divorce when he was 14 years old. And he said the divorce of his parents was more painful than, you know, finding out he was adopted. And he said the reason is the parents never explained to him why they were getting a divorce. So he was left to walk around believing that he had the, that he was part of the reason why they divorced which is a heavy thing at 14 years old. You already feel like you're adopted. Your parents didn't want you. And now you feel like the parents who did want you uh, are breaking up because of you. Like that's a lot for a 14 year old. And you know, you have the hormones and there's so many physical and uh, biological changes taking place at that age. Um, it's a hard thing to wrap your head around. And so he he tried to keep uh, he tried to keep busy. He said the hardest thing I ever did in life is being something that I wasn't. So and this is in reference what's interesting to the sports. He didn't really want to play sports. He didn't consider himself an athlete. He just saw it as something to do. To because you know he's a black kid. He's tall. He had the size. He was just like, oh, well, you know, this is what everybody wants me to do, so I'll do it. But it really was not his his true identity. It's not what he valued. And and I think when I think about athletes who have ended their lives, especially like in high school or college, it, it I I wonder about that. Like because a lot some of them are like high achieving athletes. Like you know they are all American, all state. They they have letters. They they play two sports. They're the captain of the team, and yet maybe they're only doing it because they can, but not because they really want to, not because they really identify or uh, align with the values. And I'll say that was a partly the case for myself where I wanted to do theater in high school, but I saw football as a way of getting a scholarship, which is, you know, what happened. But my heart really was on the stage. I really wanted to uh, perform. And so I completely get that. And, I, and, and what's interesting is your heart could really not be into something and you can get as far as the NFL, right? But I think that's where you see guys who have issues where I think if they're in the NFL, we go, wow, they're making all this money. They should be so grateful. And we never really ask, is this even where they want to be or is this what they're doing to support the family, to get out the hood, to have some routine? to feel feel like they're a part of something you know this is that thing and so we start to see it come undone because 
you get into the NFL, you make all this money, you have all these accolades, and it could be lonely because now people are patting you on the back and in your head, you're like, you don't like me. You just like the, the fact that I'm an athlete, I'm in the NFL, and I'm making this money. So even though you can be surrounded by a bunch of people, you can still feel um, like an outsider. He said something beautiful also. He talked about normalcy. And he said, who is normal enough to create the norm for us? I thought that was so dope, right? We have all these norms, these standards. But really, you know, if you talk to anybody long enough, you're like, they're crazy. They're a little off. You find something where you're like, oh, I didn't know you was into that, right? <laughs> so truthfully, who is normal enough to create the norm for us? Because, And he brought that up because he spent so much of his life trying to live up to the norms, trying to meet the standards. But he's like, who's normal enough or what's normal enough? You know, what's normal today was abnormal 200 years ago or even 20 years ago, right? And what's normal today could be abnormal 20 years down the road. So, you know, who is these standards that we're trying to live up to? Who Other people created that, but it's not, it doesn't make that as normal. It's, it's, if anything, it's just a, a trend. It could be like a long trend, whether that's getting married, going to college. Like those things have, you know, been um, uh, embedded us as the norm, but it doesn't mean that is normal, right? It's, it's so fascinating, but I love that quote. Um, he said the worst question I, I, he said the worst question I was afraid of is, Kevin, are you okay? It, it, oh, that just showed you his fragility, right? Like he, um, you know, if anybody just really checked in on him, he probably would have broke down um, at that moment. He's, and now there was a number of times where Kevin had actually attempted suicide. He had five more suicide attempts, he said, after talking about his problems. He said actually that talking about his problems made it worse. He felt overwhelmed. He tried to stay busy. He, uh, he, he tried to, he was on medications. He was on all these group discussions. But he said bringing it to surface just made it more painful. And so he had five more attempts. There was a point where he had a knife to his neck and the, and the police came and he said, the knife to my neck is not being crazy. It's me being in control. He said, just because you're screaming and yelling doesn't mean, uh, he goes, just because you're not screaming and yelling doesn't mean you're not crazy. It means you're better at disguising it. It's so true. There's so many times where I want to scream and yell and punch a hole on a wall, and I just didn't. You know, I just kind of grinned and bared it or, or cried into my pillow or cried in the shower or something like that. So I, <laughs> I completely under, understand that. And, and, and ultimately, not ultimately, but in a lot of cases, that is so painful, those moments where we feel like we're out of control, where, um, where we just want to have something go our way, you know, just to feel like we have some power over something, sometimes it turns into uh, something that could be self-destructive, like holding a knife to our neck. Uh, so I love that insight. And, and part of him not feeling in control was his daughter. Um, he, had a, he had a premature, his first baby was a premature baby. 
And it, and so, you know, she's in the hospital for a while, not able to hold her. But then he gets the medical bill, and it's $250,000. Wow, what a gut punch, right? And and on not only do you have that medical bill to take care of, you still have a premature baby that you have to raise that um, is going to require a lot from you financially. So at that point, you know, he felt like he couldn't protect or provide. He couldn't protect his child from harm. He couldn't provide financially. Um, and then that's when he found himself on the bridge. He said the pain felt like a semi-truck on his chest. A semi, I, You know, I find that a lot of people, when they're in pain or feel pressure, it's in the chest. And some people will say it feels like an elephant. He, you know, in his case, he said a semi-truck. And he's up there, and then he hears a voice. And he doesn't know it's an officer. He just hears someone start talking to him. And he said the guy talked to him for 92 minutes, right? Didn't say anything. He said, he just let me talk for 92 minutes straight. He had two ears, one mouth. Um, and he said that that moment of feeling heard really helped him. He said, as the words came out of my mouth, the weights got lighter. Wow. I was allowed to see how to help myself. This is, this is the most valuable part of it. Him talking it out, 92 minutes. He said, when the weight got lighter, that semi-truck became a truck, became a Tonka truck, became a toy truck, and then it was non-existent, right? It got lighter and lighter. And then he said, by him just talking, he was allowed to see how to help himself versus someone else telling him what to do and how to do it. Once again, that feeling of control, right? He said, I was able to take back my life after I accepted myself. Boom. I love that. And I hope you loved it too. If you're in that space, this is why we talk about talking it out, writing it out, um, um, uh, walking it out. It's about getting it out of our, our head, out of our bodies, out of our system. And, and at some point, we will find our own answers to our own problems. I know right now that it feels unsolvable. It feels like such a major threat. But if, if we can just feel like we have that space and someone is actually truly listening to us with two ears and one mouth, and that's even something you can say to somebody, hey, listen, I need two ears and one mouth, or I need two ears and no mouth. You got, do you got two ears for me? You know, that's such a beautiful way of, of viewing it. So if you found value in this episode, please share it with one other person, one other person. That's it. Um, and that way you two can have a conversation about where you feel the pressure in your chest or a conversation about, um, immersive experiences and, 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 you know, what were your favorites where I would love to know. You can always email me at leoflowers2000 if there's a topic for this podcast you'd love to hear about. Um, but remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling to get help. Call that 988 or any of the 800 numbers in each and every single one of the show notes. Uh, you can chat, text, talk. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Once again, that story was uh, Kevin Berthia, B-E-R-T-H-I-A, um, two ears, one heart. You can um, you can Google them, check them out, message them, 
and we'll talk to you tomorrow.